Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. This is your host, Ken Wise. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, and thanks for tuning in today for a little Texas history. This episode is being recorded and released in September of 2020. College football is about to start, a little bit uh, different this year with the government restrictions, but uh, we're going to play some college football, which is, uh, I think we can all agree, the greatest sport. Um, I hope everybody is getting back into the swing of the school year. Also changed a little bit with all of the restrictions uh, that the government has implemented. Uh, but we, I hope that uh, your kids, especially your Texas history students, are back at it. Um, I have a lot of Texas history teachers that listen to this podcast and use this podcast in their classrooms, probably more this fall than any other time, given the situation that we're in with the pandemic. But uh, I want to pay tribute to all those teachers because it's a a lot uh, different than any teachers used to or expected with all these pandemic restrictions. So thank you, teachers, for what you're doing. I'm hearing from a lot of you, and I really appreciate all your efforts. Also, I mentioned all the parents who have all of a sudden become teachers uh, with all the activities the kids have to do at home. I have teenagers, one middle school, one high school, and we're having virtual school and some in person, and I know it's a crazy time. But any of you Texas history teachers that listen to this podcast that uh, can use a little bit of help, I'm happy to Zoom with any Texas history classes out there. I've done so with college classes, with uh, seventh grade classes. Haven't tried it with fourth grade yet, but uh, any Texas history teachers listening that want to put me to work, uh, I can definitely make some time to meet with your class and talk about Texas history. Well, today... I'm going to, you know, the podcast is not the only Texas history activity I do, and uh, some of the other things that historians do include publishing articles in historical journals on topics of uh, interest to the author or the public, and I published one this summer in the Texas Supreme Court Historical Society Journal, and uh, I will post a link in the show description to this article, and the article is titled The Republic's Secret Court. And uh, so I wanted to talk about that today because before the Constitution of the Republic of Texas was ever ratified, before the Congress ever met to construct the judicial system and other branches of government, there was an emergency that required the creation of a court. And so right after the Battle of San Jacinto, President David Burnett, by executive order, had to create the Court of the District of Brazos. So I want to talk about that story today, but it doesn't begin with any particular lawsuit or criminal case or something that you're used to. It actually began with a naval battle. So let's go back to April 3rd, 1836, and get wise about Texas. All right, let's set the scene on April 3rd, 1836. We've had the Declaration of Independence, March 2nd. We had the fall of the Alamo, March the 6th. We had the Constitution of the Provisional Republic of Texas signed uh, March 16th, March 17th. You had the Goliad Massacre, March 27th. All the while, Sam Houston is leading the army east 
on either a tactical countermarch or a retreat, depending on whether you loved or hated Sam Houston. The army is itching for a fight. The government is fleeing ahead of the Mexican army, along with the runaway scrape and the citizens. The government eventually makes it to the east end of Galveston Island. Lots of people fleeing from the runaway scrape are also on Galveston Island, believed at that time to be uninhabitable. Um, several are fleeing across the, trying to get across the Trinity, trying to get across Lynch's Ferry, running away from Santa Ana. And nobody really knows at this point what's going to happen. But there was another component to the Texian forces, and that was the Texian Navy. So the Navy, the ships of the Navy are out in the Gulf, and one of the tasks they were assigned was to patrol near the mouth of the Rio Grande and try to intercept uh, shipments of supplies, etc., to the Mexican Army. So one of the better-known ships of the Texas Navy is the schooner Invincible, and it is patrolling near the mouth of the Rio Grande and comes upon a ship, a brig, called the Pocket. So the captain of the uh, Invincible, Jeremiah Brown, captures the pocket, boards her, checks the manifest, and discovers that the cargo and the manifest don't exactly match. The cargo, in fact, consisted of gunpowder, lead, guns, material for Santa Ana's army. Also on board were two individuals who were well-known agents of Mexico from New Orleans, and they had dispatches for Santa Ana. They had a map of the Texas coastline outlining what were believed to be Texian defenses, uh, the obvious conclusion being uh, that an invasion by sea was contemplated. Now, there had always been, I don't want to get too deep into the military tactics, but there had always been a plan to resupply Santa Ana uh, by sailing supplies up into the middle Texas coast. So this was all fitting together. Brown decides to sail the brig, captures the brig, decides to sail her to Galveston where the government was. So he did so. And on Galveston Island at the time, uh, as I mentioned, was the provisional government. And of course, the president was David Burnett. Also on the island uh, was a gentleman named Benjamin Cromwell Franklin. At this point, this story might start sounding familiar to longtime listeners of this podcast because I told this story, the capture of the brig. It, it was called The Pocket capture of the brig pocket. Um, I told this story in the very first episode of Wise About Texas, and the episode was First Judges of Texas and featured Benjamin Cromwell Franklin. But since that first episode, I made a discovery in the Benjamin Franklin papers at the University of Texas, and that's really the subject of this episode and why I bring up again the capture of the brig pocket. So Franklin is on the island. He was one of the trusted messengers for the army. So we think, we don't know for sure, but we think that he was probably delivering some dispatches from Sam Houston to uh, the government. So it's now mid-April, 1836. We have the pocket and all her cargo captured by the Texian Navy. It's now in Galveston. Burnett is there. Franklin is there. And Burnett instructs Franklin to raise as many men on the island as can fight 
and to meet Sam Houston and the Army, wherever they may be, uh, which we thought, of course, would be Lynch's Ferry because Sam Houston was headed that direction, as was Santa Ana. So Franklin loads up six kegs of gunpowder from the pocket, gets on a small skiff with eight other volunteers, and begins to sail up the San Jacinto River toward what would eventually be the San Jacinto Battleground. He arrives on April 20th, 1836, arrives in camp with the gunpowder. We know for sure he had gunpowder. He might have had other things, might have had guns, might have had lead, ammo, cannonballs. We don't know for sure, but uh, we do know that he had gunpowder. And he proceeds to participate in the Battle of San Jacinto as a cavalryman. And so the Battle of San Jacinto occurs and, of course, is won in 18 minutes, uh, thanks in no small part to the gunpowder from the pocket. After the battle, um, and again, I'm still uh, retelling a little bit of what we covered in Episode 1. After the battle, Thomas Rusk, the Secretary of War, asks Franklin, the trusted messenger, to return to Galveston and deliver the news to the government that Texas was now free. So Franklin does that, takes him four days uh, to get down there, and uh, he informs the government that Texas is now free. So you would think that uh, everyone would be overjoyed, uh, not a care in the world. We've captured Santa Ana. Uh, Sam Houston's going to get him to order the army out of Texas. The army's going to go out of Texas. Our problems are solved. The United States is going to annex us immediately and mission accomplished, right? Well, wrong. We had a problem, and the problem was the pocket. Well, what was the problem? We captured the ship. We got a lot of useful cargo. Uh, She was aiding Mexico. Everything looks good. Well, the problem was the pocket was an American ship sailing under an American flag. Um, The cargo was shipped by an American company and insured on the American insurance market. We had a big problem. There were editorials published in the New Orleans newspapers talking about how American shipping deserves protection from both Texas and Mexico, uh, that saying things like, we love Texas, but we love America more, give us back our ship, uh, calling the Texans pirates, etc. So Burnett, the first thing that he had to deal with after Texian independence was an international relations problem. There were a couple of agents for Texas in New Orleans, one of them, William Morton, wrote the following in a letter to David Burnett after learning of the capture of the pocket. And here's a quote from Wharton's letter. Quote, There is some talk of piracy having been committed by one of our vessels. In the name of God, let the act be disclaimed and the offenders promptly punished, if such be the fact. Close quote. So you can imagine that Wharton's trying to calm everybody down in New Orleans and appear to at least uh, agree with them temporarily that we should not have captured that ship. Um, There was another letter written by uh, a diplomat, well, I'll call him a diplomat, uh, Robert Triplett, who was also in New Orleans trying to aid the Texas cause, and he writes a letter to Burnett encouraging Burnett to issue a decree creating an admiralty court. Now, let me pause for a minute and talk about admiralty law in brief. When you have a situation where a company arrests a ship, in other words, detains it, um, 
you the way you decide legal matters involving shipping is under the law of admiralty. Now, by this time, 1836, the law of admiralty had been well developed in Western Europe, and uh, particularly England. Um, everyone would have been familiar with the admiralty law and the general process involved. But think about where we were in Texas. We had no law. All we had done was win a revolution. We didn't have any laws. We didn't have a Congress. We didn't really have a Constitution because though they had drafted one as a provisional government, that was a revolutionary government, and it only existed as long as it could survive. So once you win the revolution, you've got to go out and set up your laws, have the voters, the people, ratify the Constitution, uh, have them elect regular government officials under the regular government created by that Constitution they just ratified, and institute a normal process. And then you can have some law. You can do, for example, what uh, Texas did and adopt officially the English common law, um, although we also use a lot of Spanish and Mexican law. But you have that regular process, and of course all of that takes time. Well, they didn't have any time because they had the pocket in port. So Triplett suggests, look, you got to issue a, an executive order, a presidential decree, and establish an admiralty court so that we can dispense with the pocket and make it seem legitimate. And this is what his letter said, quote, according to the law of nations, close quote. In other words, everyone would expect to see an admiralty court trying an admiralty case and adjudicating in some fair way, uh, the capture of this ship. And Triplett anticipated the problem Burnett would face because there was no authority, really, for him to create anything. And so Triplett suggests that if anybody gave Burnett any grief about it, that uh, he should tell them, quote, the law of necessity, the strongest known to man, gives you the power, close quote. Well, Burnett was well aware of the problem. And uh, he, you know, the, the plan all along, and again, this is probably a whole other episode, but the plan all along, and, and I, don't worry, I'm ready for your comments on this, was for Texas to be annexed to the United States as quickly as possible. And so it was critical for Texas to appear not as the ruffians and outlaws that pretty much everybody thought they were, and there was plenty of evidence for that, but rather a functioning nation with uh, established laws and established processes. So Burnett knew he had to do something. Well, here's what he did. He took Triplett's advice and decided to create a court. And he also needs to appoint someone as a judge of that court. Well, the first person he asked was James Collinsworth, who later would be the first Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, even though the Supreme Court didn't meet under his tenure. He was elected by the legislature Chief Justice. But Burnett wanted him to be the judge of the court. Now, evidently he turned it down because Burnett eventually appointed our friend Benjamin Cromwell Franklin as the judge of the court of the District of Brazos. Now, let's talk about this for a second. Everything that I had read up to a few months ago had said a couple of different things about this court. The most common thing they said was that it was created as an admiralty court, and I discovered that is wrong. Um, the other thing that's said uh, a lot is that nobody knew when the court was created. Well, that's also wrong. Um, I found in the state archives the order, a copy of the order that created 
the court of the district of Brazos. And it's dated May 8th, 1836. So we now know when the court was created. Now that's not very long after the Battle of San Jacinto, so you can tell this was a very urgent problem. But something else that was interesting and led to the article that this episode is based on is that the order does not create an admiralty court. Rather, it just creates a court. And he appoints Franklin Judge with all the, quote, power, jurisdiction, and emoluments of the office, close quote. That's what the order says. Now, there were no emoluments because the Republic of Texas was broke. But he created it with all power and jurisdiction of the office. Well, what's the office? The office is the court of the District of Brazos. That's all it says. It's not an admiralty court. It's just a court. It's a court of, of general jurisdiction. Now, obviously, the reason the court was created was to try an admiralty case, and specifically the case of the capture of the pocket. But that's not what happened. Well, that's not exactly what happened. He did try the case of the pocket, and Judge Franklin found that uh, the pocket was a prize of war. Now, that was a very convenient ruling, obviously, since uh, we had fired the cargo of the pocket back at its owners uh, during the Battle of San Jacinto. But Judge Franklin didn't stop. He kept sitting as the judge of the District of Brazos, and he kept the court open. In fact, now I discovered this when uh, I was researching Franklin's life, and I was in his uh, looking at his papers at the Briscoe Center at the University of Texas, and first of all, there's a photostatic copy of the order creating the court of the District of Brazos, so nobody bothered to look in there uh, who's written about this before. But uh, the other thing that I found were copies of petitions filed in the court of the District of Brazos. One of them, for example, was the petition to uh, condemn the ship The Watchman. Now, if you go back to the Wise About Texas Archives, specifically episode 41, titled The Horse Marines, I tell the story of the capture of three Mexican ships by Isaac Burton and his men uh, who managed to capture them without firing a shot. One of those ships was the Watchman. So there's a petition filed in the court of the District of Brazos addressed as such pleadings were at the time to the judge of the court and names Benjamin C. Franklin, and it asked to condemn the Watchman. So that was another admiralty case that Franklin would have tried, and we know he did try it because we do have the judgment and uh, some other documents associated with the judgment involving, including payment to Isaac Burton as, as uh, the percentage of the uh, value that his men were entitled to. So we know that case was completed, um, and it would have been completed in the court of the District of Brazos. Uh, interestingly, that petition in the What's in Franklin's papers appears to be a copy. It was signed by Patrick Jack. Now, you may recall Patrick Jack was a lawyer who uh, was friends with William Barrett Travis and in the Anahuac disturbances was one of the main actors along with Travis in the Anahuac disturbances. So Patrick Jack signed it, and he signed it as attorney for the District of Brazos. Now, I don't know if that meant that he was appointed as a district attorney, which would have been very interesting because that would have been another government official appointed uh, before the Constitution was even ratified. Or was he just signing it as 
an attorney in the district of Brazos. We don't know. Um, but that, that's something that, uh, so we know that the court handled that case as well. There are also deeds that survived that were filed with the court of the district of Brazos. Now, nowadays that sounds very strange because you don't file property deeds with district courts anymore. But what it shows you is that this was the only official government office of any kind um, that was open. And so at least office of the Republic of Texas. Um, So people were eager to do business as the Republic of Texas and do business with the Republic of Texas and clearly considered themselves citizens of a new country. And they flocked to this court to do their business. So there are several deeds uh, or copies of deeds that were filed in the Republic of Texas. Now, interestingly, um, at least one of those deeds was actually drafted by Benjamin Cromwell Franklin, who was also a lawyer. And so you had a situation where the judge uh, drafted the deed as a lawyer and then filed it with himself for a recording and approval, presumably. So um, it's kind of an awkward situation. Um, But I found something else in those papers that uh, really caught my eye, and that was a memorandum book. When you open this memorandum book, it looks like a ledger, and there are amounts of money. There's descriptions and then amounts of money recorded on the right side. So it is uh, kind of a ledger book. So I start looking at it, and what I discovered after looking at it for a few minutes, because it seemed to me to be kind of a book of accounts. There seemed to be fees being charged, perhaps loans being made, and I was just kind of casually looking. And then I was, as I was reading the descriptions, it dawned on me what I was really looking at was a record, the only one I'm aware of, that survives from the court of the District of Brazos. And it was a record of what Judge Franklin was doing as a judge of the court. He had kept the court open beyond the case of the pocket to do the people's business under that order from Burnett. And he was very busy. Now, I had never heard or read about any of this. Uh, I am not aware of any writing, and I hope if someone out there is, please send it to me at host at wiseabouttexas.com. But I don't think anybody really focused on the fact that this court stayed open and did business beyond the case of the pocket. So I started looking at it, and uh, he was charging fees for uh the decisions that he was making. Now, this is not unusual back then because under the Alcalde system before the revolution, the Alcaldes were entitled, who acted as judges, that was one of their functions, were entitled to charge fees for conducting court business. In fact, it was one of the complaints of the colonists that a lot of these Alcaldes were getting rich um, on their judicial decisions. In fact, when uh, Stephen F. Austin was allowed to promulgate some civil laws and regulations for his colony, uh, which was in the 1820s, he would he actually specifically wrote down what the alcaldes could charge, so there'd be some sort of restriction. Well, Franklin was operating under that system because this memorandum book listed many of the things that he was doing as judge. Here are some examples. Uh, he issued certificates of citizenship, uh, one in particular to Peter Griffin. He charged $2.00. Um, he charged a man named, uh, first name Thomas, the last name was illegible, 
charged a dollar for writing an affidavit and administering an oath. Not sure what that was in connection with, although most of the business was in connection with land. He issued letters of administration, which are uh, probate documents that you deal with if somebody dies and uh, someone's appointed the administrator of the estate. So there was some of that. I started uh, sniffing around for criminal cases after this. I went down to the Brazoria County Archives and discovered a criminal indictment in the court of the District of Brazos. So he wasn't just handling uh, land business or probate business. He was also trying criminal cases. Um, I found I did was started to do a little more research and found another criminal case that was likely in that court. I haven't verified it yet. Um, and then I found one of my favorite characters in Texas history, as longtime listeners know, is Angelina Eberly. And I discovered in this memorandum book a wedding performed by Judge Franklin for Jacob Eberly and Angelina Payton. And so Angelina Payton became Angelina Eberly, presided in a wedding presided over by Judge Benjamin Cromwell Franklin of the Court of the District of Brazos. So all of this is very interesting, but I got to tell you the sad part. I was in the middle of working on this article and scheduled a trip back to Austin to dig deeper into uh, the business of the court of the district of Brazos, as well as look around the state archives for what I now knew existed when the pandemic hit and everything shut down. So unfortunately, uh, the article I published was just the first round of research And this episode is the first round of research, and I reserve the right to supplement this episode with a bonus as I learn more about what was accomplished in the court of the District of Brazos. But what this tells you is that what started out as an international relations problem that Burnett solved by creating a court and appointing a well-respected person as its judge became a lesson in the need for a viable society to have a functioning judiciary and how critical it is to the life of the people uh, that they have um, courts that they can count on. And the court of the District of Brazos will go down in Texas history as one of the first demonstrations of the viability of the young Republic of Texas. Now we come to the part of the episode I call getting there where I tell you where you can go see some of the things that happened in the episode. Unfortunately, this is another one of those episodes where I didn't really talk a lot about specific places. We think that uh, the trial of the pocket was held either in Velasco or perhaps Brazoria. I believe uh, that Judge Franklin lived in Brazoria for a period of time. The Brazoria County Archives are on the top floor of the Brazoria County Museum, which is in an old courthouse in Angleton, and I strongly encourage you to visit. It's a lovely museum. If you uh, have the time and desire to look at the original minute book from the Brazoria District Court, also presided over by Judge Franklin after uh, the government was set up, he was one of the first uh, four judges in the Republic of Texas after the the, uh, Constitution and laws were initiated, you can see cases recorded in that minute book that obviously had to have started in the court of the District of Brazos, even though it doesn't say it. And of course, we mentioned the Battle of San Jacinto. So here's your regular reminder to go visit the San Jacinto battleground, especially as the weather turns cooler. 
Benjamin Cromwell Franklin's papers are located in the Briscoe Center for American History on the campus of the University of Texas, and uh, that's over by the LBJ Library. It is a wonderful place, very significant uh, archive in the state, and you can view uh, Benjamin Cromwell Franklin's papers, including the Minute Book um, that I referred to. I'll be going back there as soon as they reopen to do more research. Uh, it's very, very interesting to go into these archives and be able to see these documents firsthand. And we also mentioned Galveston, where we sailed the captured pocket. Uh, there's some Texas Navy-related things in the Texas Seaport Museum there. And if you go to the Bryan Museum, uh, you will find some documents addressed. There's one on display addressed to Judge Franklin uh, after he was a judge in Houston. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, go like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. And if you support the promotion and preservation of Texas history, you can support the show via Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Wise About Texas. As always, keep your episode suggestions coming to me at host at wiseabouttexas.com. So go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.